BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. This is the California Report. Good morning. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. With highly infectious subvariants of Omicron like BA5 increasing the spread of COVID-19, mask mandates continue to be reintroduced in the state. Starting today, the San Diego Unified School District will require indoor masking for thousands of students and staff involved with summer school activities. The mask mandate will last at least two weeks. Public school parent Allison Duran, who supports the decision, spoke to San Diego's News 10. I think they're following the science and uh, being in the science field myself, I absolutely appreciate them following the science. UC Irvine is also returning to an indoor mask mandate starting today. It will cover all students and faculty on campus, regardless of their vaccination status. Nearly nine out of every 10 Californians now live in counties with a high level of COVID-19 community transmission. A group of foster youth gave a presentation to the state public health director last week about why it's important to include young people in COVID-19 vaccination efforts. KQED's Holly J. McDeed reports. 18-year-old Marta Rivas Crespin participated in the summer internship program along with several other foster youth. Her English tutor passed away last year after getting COVID-19, and both experiences have fueled a budding interest in public health. I was like super sad when I found out that she passed away. And for me, I learned that you need to take care of yourself more. And like being wearing masks everywhere that you go, even if you're with your friends. Camila Cribb Fabersoon is a pediatrician and she works with the San Francisco Department of Public Health. She says the goal of the program is to promote informed conversations around vaccines and to address the disproportionate burden COVID-19 can have on foster youth. Things like COVID infection interfering with foster youth's ability to access safe and stable housing, participating in, in their legal right to visitations with their biological family. The San Francisco program wrapped up this weekend, and in a closing ceremony, the vaccine ambassadors encouraged the state public health director to tap other young people throughout California in the push to vaccinate. For The California Report, I'm Holly J. McDeed. A ballot initiative that would have taxed the state's wealthy to fund public health programs won't make it to the ballot this year. But that doesn't mean the idea is dead, as KCRW's Kaylee Wells reports. Here's how it would have worked. For every dollar of taxable income, over $5 million, the rich would pay an additional 75 cents. That could have generated $15 billion over a decade. The Silicon Valley tech executives who sponsored the effort say they got the signatures they needed, but intentionally missed the submission deadline by one day. 
That's because they say voters are more concerned with inflation and higher taxes than public health right now, partially because of pandemic fatigue. The measure would have helped struggling local health departments, among other things. Governor Gavin Newsom never publicly supported it, and now sponsors are trying to reach a deal with Newsom. By submitting enough signatures past the deadline, though, the measure would be eligible for the ballot in 2024. For the California Report, I'm Kaylee Wells in Los Angeles. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hi there, I'm Randa Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. In an effort to boost sagging recycling rates, the state has looked to local pilot programs to make it easier for consumers to get that nickel or dime deposit back on bottles and cans they return. But rather than helping people keep items out of landfills, an investigation by the L.A. nonprofit Consumer Watchdog found the pilot programs aren't really taking off. KCRW's Tara Atrian has the details. More than 40% of the deposit fees California consumers pay aren't refunded, the third lowest among all states with bottled deposits nationwide. The steady disappearance of redemption centers is partly to blame for the meager percentage. One of CalRecycle's solutions to the crisis is to push city and county-based pilot projects, including mobile return efforts. However, Consumer Watchdog's investigation says those initiatives are anything but successful. The group found they're neither convenient nor financially stable. The probe analyzed four bottle return pilots that each got $1 million grants from the state, including initiatives in Culver City and Irvine. None of them are bringing enough recyclables to cover the operational costs of the pilot program itself, and most are less than convenient for people to use to redeem their deposit. As a fix, Consumer Watchdog proposes systematic reform of the entire bottle deposit program, including tapping into supermarkets and beverage makers to refund those nickels and dimes. For the California Report, I'm Tara Atrion in Los Angeles. As more states pass restrictions on abortions, California wants to be a sanctuary state for people seeking to end their pregnancies. But thousands arriving annually from out of state for reproductive services could put a strain on California abortion providers. Some have brought up the possibility of opening clinics on land owned by Native American tribes. But that's not an easy solution. To help explain, the California Report's Keith Mizuguchi spoke with Lauren Van Schilf guard, a legal clinic director at the UCLA School of Law. What are some of the challenges that tribal lands here in California are facing if they were asked to open clinics for reproductive services right now? Well, I think the the primary point of inquiry is the extent to which a tribe itself would seek to open its own abortion clinic, which of course requires navigating all of the internal politics and processes for doing that. The second is that the primary funding source for tribal health care is the Indian Health Service. 
Akin to the VA, the federal government has an obligation to provide comprehensive health services to Native Americans pursuant to its trust responsibility as well as treaty obligations. That means that the majority of health clinics operating in Indian country are either operated by Indian Health Service or are operated by tribes but funded by Indian Health Service. The problem is that because these are 100% federal dollars, they are restricted by the Hyde Amendment, which is a rider on federal appropriations limiting any federal funds from going to abortion care. Effectively, that means that any Indian health clinic is prohibited from providing abortion care services. There are exceptions for rape, incest, and the threat of a mother, but these exceptions are narrow and certainly narrowly applied by IHS. There's no effort right now on the federal level to do away with the Hyde Amendment, is there? Not that I know of. However, that's certainly my initial point of advocacy, especially post-Dobbs, that, you know, I know that there is movement within Congress to provide a statutory protection of abortion care. For Native people, this can and must include lifting the Hyde Amendment because the reality is that Native people have been living under an abortion ban because of the Hyde Amendment since it was passed in the 1970s. For Native American communities here in California, what has healthcare services looked like over the past few decades? And what have been the limitations in terms of access to these services? It's hard to generalize across states, especially a state like California. There are 574 federally recognized tribes in the country, and 109 of them are just here in the state of California. And so the diversity across California makes it hard to generalize, coupled with the large urban population of both California natives, but also members of other tribes that live here in California. That being said, Indian Health Service has been accused anecdotally of being grossly underfunded. This was finally investigated through a series of governmental accountability reports um, over the last decade. And they looked at various ways in which the funding streams come into IHS. A really useful analysis they did compared the funding going to IHS compared to the VA and Medicare and looked at a per patient cost analysis. Compared to those two entities, the amount of dollars that goes to every Native patient is about one-fifth compared to VA patients and Medicare patients. That was the California Report's Keith Mizuguchi speaking with Lauren Van Schilfgaard with UCLA School of Law. Why, yes, you are seeing a lot more electric vehicles out on the roads. New sales numbers are out showing Americans are buying EVs at record levels, and they'd actually be buying a lot more if it weren't for supply chain problems affecting the availability of vehicles. California, perhaps not surprisingly, is leading the electric vehicle buying spree. I met up recently with EV industry analyst Lauren McDonald to talk about Californians' growing embrace of battery-powered cars and the opportunities and challenges ahead. California is in a complete another category. Last year is an example. You know, more than one out of ten of every new vehicles purchased was electric vehicle. 
And, you know, just to be clear, when I say electric, that includes both what we call BEVs, the full battery electric vehicles, and the plug-in hybrids, those that have both a traditional gas engine, but also a battery, and you're able to plug it and charge. So is that an adoption rate that you like? Are we moving fast enough? California is definitely moving fast enough, right? I mean, and we're in this sort of early, we're still in early phase. Like I refer to the modern era of EVs as starting about 2010. So we're like 10, 11, 12 years in, and we've only really just sort of started. Like EVs are really starting to, to take off just now. But California is, is like five years ahead of most of the rest of the, the country. What uh, do you attribute that to? Is that... California culture? Is it incentives? Is it all of the above? It's, it's a lot of things. One of it is just California tends to be ahead on a lot of things. We adopted solar before at a much higher level than, than anybody. So part of it's in our DNA of people who live in California. Part of it is the fact that, you know, Tesla's here. Uh, a big part of it is gas prices. California has always had higher gas prices. So people in California are used to being aware of the cost to drive a gas car and alternatives to, to the gas engines. And plus we do have good incentives, the state, there's multiple programs behind it, we're ahead on charging. So it's, it's really, it's multiple factors. What's the not so great news about California and EV adoption? I think part of it is really the, the charging infrastructure. We're putting a lot of money in, into the charging infrastructure, but I think a lot of uh, a lot of it is going into the what we call the DC fast charging. So those really fast chargers that you need when you go on long road trips, like between Northern and Southern California. But really about half of the people in the state live in apartments, condos, or homes where they don't have access to conveniently charge just plugging in at home every night and waking up in the morning with a full battery. And I think we're not putting enough investment and you know, infrastructure and policy behind solving that. So that limits like the growth of the market. We really need to solve for those people who just can't pull into the driveway, plug in and wake up with a full battery. Again, that's electric vehicle industry analyst, Lauren McDonald. And finally, new stamps honoring mariachis have been released by the U.S. Postal Service. They're the creation of artist Rafael Lopez, who lives and works in both San Diego and Mexico. Each stamp features a performer dressed in traditional mariachi attire, called a traje de charro, and playing one of five instruments. The origins of mariachi music are unclear, but the consensus is that it began in the 18th century in western Mexico, where itinerant musicians made their living traveling from village to village to perform. Artist Lopez describes the effect of mariachi music as magical, leaving people in a festive mood and turning strangers into friends. I can attest to that. The mariachi stamps are being issued as forever stamps, which means they are always equal to whatever it costs to mail a letter. And that, listeners, is the California Report for today, Monday, July 18th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm your host, Saul Gonzalez. Thanks so much for listening, and have a great day. Support for the California Report comes from the Wesley Foundation, investing in California's underserved youth. Paint Care, now with 834 drop-off sites in California where households and businesses can recycle their leftover paint. More at paintcare.org. 
And Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. Thanks.